corporate expression to our love for you, our faith in you, our trust in you, our submission to you as we desire to hear you speak to us from your word, reveal yourself to us from your word, so that in your word we hear you, as it were, speak to us from heaven. And we pray that by your spirit we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that gladly yield to the voice of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the glory of God is revealed to us in all of its majesty and wonder. So please help us to see that, our Lord Jesus, in your message to the church, as you do quite literally in the text of Revelation, give us a message through John, the messenger, a message from the right hand of the Father. May we listen May we understand and may we respond in faith to your everlasting glory. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, back to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, as we know, those who have been with us at least for the last couple of weeks, that we are in the last message of Christ to the seven churches. So this is the seventh church, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as noted, when we come to this last message, the seventh church, the church of Laodicea, we come to one of his most devastating messages uh, compared to all of the other churches. There is no good thing that he says about the church at Laodicea. It is only rebuke. It is only condemnation. The only bright spot, again, as we note each time we've come to this, is that he gives the opportunity for repentance and revealing then his heart, his heart to receive into his presence, into his good grace, into his covenant, those who are outside of it. And so we noted at first that Laodicea was a town, a city noted for its wealth, noted for its ease, noted for its industry, banking, and so forth. It was a city that was well situated to be complacent in things of the gospel because of this affluence. We noted as well, secondly, the character of Christ revealed as he speaks to us from heaven, that he is the centrality of all of God's purposes for creation, every aspect of the covenant. He is the very essence of why there is anything and nothing. In the words of Paul to the Colossians, it was through him and for him that all things were created. Everything exists through Christ and for Christ and is summed up under Christ. He is the very center of all of God's eternal purposes, the Son of God in flesh, accomplishing redemption to bring to himself a people for God's own possession, to share in his own fellowship with the Father. And so he speaks as one with full authority, who has words of authority that also bring finality to everything that he says. And now we come again a third week to note and begin to note his message to the church, his specific message to the church at Laodicea. And again, it is a message that is quite scathing, actually, but very instructive. But knowing the, the culture of the people that he's speaking to, let me introduce the message, his message this morning in this way. Uh, by noting that a culture of wealth produces its own set of problems. Every culture has its own set of problems. Every circumstance has its own set of problems. And so does a culture of wealth, a culture of affluence, and a culture of ease. Let me illustrate this in a couple of ways. Uh, first, in 2013, Ethan Couch, some of you will remember that name, is a young man who got drunk 
and then got behind the wheel of his father's F-350 truck, and as the report goes, he was speeding at 65 miles per hour. He plowed his father's F-350 into a group of people on the roadside, helping a stranded motorist outside Fort Worth. Of course, he went to trial, and he gave his defense, and his defense... As an argument, in order to lessen his culpability, argued that, that, that he suffered from what is known as affluenza. Affluenza. Affluenza is defined actually in the Webster Dictionary in this way. One meaning is that it refers to feelings of guilt, lack of motivation, and social isolation experienced by wealthy people. The second definition is this. Extreme materialism and consumerism associated with the pursuit of wealth and success and resulting in a life of chronic dissatisfaction, debt, overwork, stress, and impaired relationship. Now, taking that definition and applying it to the situation of Ethan Couch, uh, the defense called forth a psychologist, and the psychologist made this argument. Uh, the teenager received whatever he asked for as a child and was constantly rewarded with gifts wrecking havoc on his ability to perceive the consequences of his action. And then a direct quote, Instead of the golden rule, which was do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Couch was taught that we have the gold, we make the rules at the Couch household. In other words, that's all he knew. In short then, he was not guilty into the full moral responsibility that a usual person would be held to, uh, he was in somehow absolved of the full weight of what he had done and his actions because of his sense of privilege. Now, the great sadness in all of this is not only what it reveals about him personally and his family and the context he grew up in, but probably the most devastating reality is that those listening to the trial in this defense accepted that as a rational defense. As a rational point. The most devastating part of that is that the judge heard that kind of argument and rather than laughing it off with disgust, saw in it a moral merit that caused him to lessen the sentence of Ethan Couch. So, in other words, of affluenza, which can only happen in an affluent society, and in the case of Ethan Couch, meant that moral absolutes and personal responsibility are relegated to secondary issues in the light of influence of wealth and privilege. Now, this part of the culture has found its way into much of the professing church as well. In the case of a lessened view of God, a diminished view of human sin and culpability and guilt, a diminished view of the work of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the very purpose of the gospel... The kind of silliness that goes on in Christian circles that could only be birthed out of a culture of narcissism and self-centeredness. And so it is. One example of this is found in a book entitled Soul Searching. The subtitle is The Religious and Spiritual Life of American Teenagers. It was published in 2005. And it was written by Christian sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist Denton. Now, in this book, after, a concert, after comprehensive interviews and research, summarized, they summarized the overall mindset of the American teenager in the now often cited descriptive term, moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. That was sort of their summary of the religious life of American teenagers. Now, the basic tenets of this belief are, and I think they'll go up there, 
One, that God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life from earth, on earth. Number two, it, it holds it kind of, that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, that the central good of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so the general guidance for the Christian life is that we live with a God whose main tenets of his interaction with his people is that he requires of us to be moral, he's concerned that we feel good, and that he has no general or specific knowledge about himself that should be pursued and held to, moral therapeutic deism. That God requires of us merely to be moral people concerned about right and wrong and to be a good person. And by being so, we will also then be happy. That God is therapeutic in his concerns. That he is there to help you when you struggle or are hurt or need his help to achieve something to make you feel better. Not a calling from, from sin to repentance and faith in Christ. One even described it under this therapeutic uh, sense. A 15-year-old Hispanic girl from Florida, she's described as. She says this, God is like someone who is always there for you. I don't know. It's, it's like God is God. He's just like somebody that will always help you when you go through whatever you go, you're going through. When I became a Christian, I, I was just praying and it always made me feel better. That's her testimony. And then deism, a view of God that matches or reflects the 18th century belief that, that in general the idea was that God created the world and he created a moral universe. He is a creator. He is a lawgiver. There is, there is a, a way that we should live as his creatures. But he essentially is uninvolved in the most part. He's certainly not involved in the details of life. He created the world. He put a moral order into the universe. But then he stands back and lets those principles work themselves out as they will. Intervening in some cases. Intervening some Sometimes, but basically letting it go its course. Nothing specific that needs to be believed and followed about him so much. Uh, this is sometimes captured in the, the, the description of God as the big guy in the sky. The big guy upstairs, the big man upstairs. He's take care, he takes care of me. Under this, a 17, as she's described, a 17-year-old girl from Florida said this, a Protestant girl. God's all around you all the time. He believes in forgiving people and whatnot. He's, he's there to guide us, for somebody to talk to and help us through our problems. Of course, he doesn't talk back. Of course, this is a God who makes few demands, would only send really bad people to hell, really bad people, and accepts you as a good person if you are sincerely trying to do good and you are and he's very concerned that you are happy and he is certainly a non-judgmental god and that's the environment i think that we can see working itself out in our culture this is this is a consequence of affluence this is a consequence of wealth and abundance the consequence of ease the overall point in these illustrations is to say that affluence, ease, comfort can have devastating effects on a culture, but more importantly on the church when she imbibes rather than confronts the cultural assumptions and mindset that compromise a biblical view of humanity and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the issue. 
It's the kind of adoption of that mindset and thinking that produces spiritual uselessness and even worse, self-deception. This is the Christianity of Joel Osteen, health and wealth preachers, liberal denominations, and many who fill the churches in Western nations and in our own nation, and even more specifically in our own neighborhoods often. A Christianity that has a name, that has activity, and a deep sense of self-security, self-satisfaction, but is offensive to Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is going to confront, this kind of attitude, this kind of reality in the church at Laodicea. A kind of wishy-washy faith that really amounts to nothing more than people who are self-deceived in their relationship with God and spiritually useless to the kingdom of God and to Christ. And in fact, will be utterly rejected by him. Let me read, beginning in verse 14, the message of Christ to this church. And I'll read down to verse 20. We'll cover verses 15 through 17 this morning. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, neither cold, nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Let's note the first part of his message. To go back to verse 15. And note that this church, Laodicea, was spiritually useless. It was a useless church. Useless to the purposes of God. Useless to true worship. Useless to evangelism. Useless to the glory of Jesus Christ. This is a devastating rebuke. I mean, nobody wants to be useless, especially when you're self-satisfied with yourself, with your accomplishments and your merits. When you think that you're favored of God. But they were just the opposite. He says, and as he does with each of the churches, well, most of them, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And it is a reminder, and each time that Christ mentions this to the churches, that the risen Christ is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He knows them not merely as bare facts of observation, but he knows them in the sense of their true quality and the one from whom they are done. In other words, the character in which they are done and the character of the one who does them. He had said this to the church at Thyatira. He said, I am he who searches the minds or the affections, the kidneys, the reality of the inward wants and hearts. And he says, I will give each to each one of you according to your deeds. And so he says, I know your deeds. And you could say with that, I know your deeds. I know who you are. I know who you are in yourselves, in your inner selves. I know it is this knowledge of who we really are that is the basis of either our reward or our punishment. It is the basis, not merely that God says he did great things, 
But it is to say, why did they do those things? What was the quality of them? And that's constantly the basis of judgment uh, in Scripture and in the, the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, let me just be an example. In a, in a good sense, in Revelation 14, 13, he says, I heard a voice from heaven write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Lord, so that they may rest from their labors, or their, for their deeds follow after them. Their deeds that were worthy, their deeds that were an expression of genuine faith, their deeds that were counted as acceptable in Christ by God. And then there are those deeds that are the opposite. In Revelation 20, it is the deeds that God will judge as being reflections of corruption. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened in which the book of and which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So I know your deeds. I know what they are. I know what you do. I know why you do them. I know everything about them. I know what they reveal about your character is the idea. I know. It is an intimate knowledge. And his evaluation of them, he says in verse 15, it says that you, and note how he goes from deeds to you. He skips over any kind of mention of what those deeds might actually be and addresses them directly, essentially. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were one or another. But because they're not, here it's ultimately going to lead to their rejection. Now, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by your deeds being cold or hot. They're neither cold or hot, but he wishes that they were. Well, there's discussion on this. First, it would helpful be helpful to remind us of a little bit of possible backgrounds. As noted in the introduction a couple of weeks ago, one possible background to this statement, and one of the, the common discussions about the background of this, was the, the fact that Laodicea was an affluent city. It was an important city, but Laodicea geographically lacked its own water supply, and so it had to get water from outside of itself. It's commonly recognized, although this is debated, but there were two sources of water that came into the city. One from about six miles away, Hierapolis, and that was hot springs. We showed a picture of that. It was hot water. They had like a healing sort of properties. And the other was Colossae. Then water came in from there, and it was known for its cold springs. It's kind of refreshing water, and so it's understood that uh, this water, that as it traveled the distance from its original source, by the time it reached Laodicea, had lost really any of its beneficial properties and even had a high mineral content that could make someone sick, make them vomit, nauseous, uh, in drinking it. And so that the water, by the time that it traveled from its original source and reached Laodicea, was lukewarm and, and that that is the uh, background. Others have noted that the water supply in Laodicea at different time periods, not too far off of when Jesus wrote this letter, uh, was praised as being good. And this is, and they say really it's not so much that the hot and cold as far as those uh, properties of it, but rather he's drawing from a dining context in which water served that wasn't uh, hot or cold, but was lukewarm, was undesirable. And so it's, it could be either of those. But in either case, the thing that he rebukes them for is that the water and its end result is lukewarm. And that they are lukewarm. And he uses that as the background. Now then what precisely is the rebuke? 
Well, those drawing from the background of the two sources of water, being lukewarm by the time it gets there, says he's rebuking them for their spiritual condition as neither hot, that is zealous for the Lord, or cold, indifferent, or even hostile to the Lord. But they are spiritually uncommitted and dull. They are neutral. They're nominal. A second way to take it is that he's drawing from the dinner imagery. And the issue is not so much the two temperatures of the springs that are pumped into Laodicea, but the undesirable temperature for consumption. And therefore, the main rebuke is the ineffectiveness of their works, that they are of no effect, they're of no importance, that what they're doing is of no value to the Lord and witnessing to Him. Now, although I wouldn't be dogmatic, the best understanding, it seems to me, is the first option, that he's referring to the two sources of water. But there's really not a need to make such a sharp distinction, really, in terms of the final effect. In both cases, the final effect is that their self-satisfaction and lack of spiritual reality made them and their works spiritually useless to Christ. That's the main idea. They were lukewarm. Now, in what sense were they useless? Well, it seems then that their lack of spiritual growth, even spiritual reality made them useless as any kind of real witness to Christ. Sometimes it's described that they weren't, they weren't like the cool, refreshing waters that brought spiritual refreshment to those who came in contact with them, nor were they like the hot, healing waters of Hierapolis who were zealous to be a witness to the Lord. They were just nothing. They were, they were empty. They were vain. They weren't really useless for, useful for anything. And so Christ says to them at the end of 15, I wish that you were cold or hot. Which is to say, really, I wish that you were one or the other. I wish that you were either zealously for me or even that you were against me. But to be in the middle is detestable and produces nothing of spiritual value. In this sense, then, he says, when he says, I wish you were hot, he is then meaning, I wish you were zealous for Christ. This is an idea that's sometimes translated as fervent in spirit, another form of the word used in the New Testament two times. Fervent in spirit. Apollos in Acts 18 was fervent in spirit. In Romans 12, he calls Christians to be fervent in spirit. And, he's, and he here then would be picking up on that kind of imagery and saying, I wish that you were fervent for the Lord, the things of the Lord, that you had some kind of passion for the truth. Now, Others say, well, that's a difficult then if we take that as the contrast, because then Christ would seem to be condoning being spiritually cold. I wish that you were hot, or I wish that you were cold. And that seems very unlikely that he would do that. However, he's not condoning rejection of the gospel, but he's using a figure of speech in which he's emphasizing the extremes to highlight the one point, the detestable situation of being lukewarm. To be cold and hostile towards the gospel, one says, at least suggests that religion is something to be earnest about. There's more hope for the openly antagonistic than for the coolly indifferent, end quote. And on this note then, one of the most dangerous spiritual conditions is to be just religious enough to get by and salve your conscience. Just religious, religious enough to feel better about yourself and confident that you'll go to heaven when you die. In fact, one of the greatest hindrances to salvation and one of the greatest deceptions about the reality of our sin comes in the form of religion. Of religion, even Christianity, that hides from us the reality of who we are when it's not a clear message. And so Jesus says then, 
at the end of verse 16, his response to that is, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is utter rejection, absolute rejection. It really is a statement not only of rejection, but it's a statement of disgust, putridness. Like when you eat something bad and you can't wait to get it out of your mouth. That's what he says of the church here in Laodicea. It's really not unlike the attitude of God toward Israel when they had fallen into similar patterns of thought. God wanted to spew them out of his land. He wanted to cast them out. He wanted to get them out of any sense of privilege and get them out of his presence, as it were, in, as it was represented in the temple. Let me just give you an example. In 2 Kings, referring to God's coming judgment and exile, the nation of Israel, he explains why that happened in 2 Kings 17. He's he says, this came about, he's talking about the, the destruction that came to them, the exile when they were taken away. He says, it came about because they didn't heed the warnings, but they, verse 12, served idols, in which the Lord said, you shall not do this thing. But they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They turned to their evil ways. And they did not listen, he says in verse 14, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And so in verse 20... He says, the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. I can't stand the sight of you. You've so become useless to me and my purposes and as my people. And he says the same thing regarding the exile that was to come to the land of as well, in verse 20 of chapter 24, he says, Though the anger of the Lord came again about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. Israel was cast out of his presence because he could not stand them to be in his, near him anymore. Judah and Jerusalem were cast out of his presence in exile. The temple destroyed because he couldn't stand the sight of them anymore because of their rejection and their cool-heartedness toward him and their easy slide into idolatry. So in saying this, that I will spit them out of my mouth, such a strong statement, he's not simply talking about them as being spiritually immature or complacent or even unenergetic, but in reality, he is recusing them of being unbelieving by any true measure of repentant faith or the gospel. He's saying, you are not those who worship in spirit and truth. You are not those my Father is seeking. There's no hatred of sin, hunger for the word, true humility. And this is, again, a very dangerous situation to be in. Because remember, he's speaking to those who are gathering under the name of Christ. This is a church, after all, that the message is going to. This is a church, after all, that received an apostolic letter and recognition in the book of Colossians. This is a church, but not really. And again, it's so dangerous to be in this. One said this, Nothing can be done with a nominal Christian who cannot recognize that he needs repentance and that Jesus is really outside of his life. Another said this, commenting on these verses, Those who self-righteously think they are saved are often protective of their religious feelings and unwilling to recognize their real condition. Tell me if you understand, uh, agree with this statement and have experienced it. No one is harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. End quote. 
No one is harder to reach for Christ than somebody who names the name of Christ and is unregenerate. I know that you would agree in your experience as well. Uh, when I actually worked in the world, uh, that the most hostile reactions that I received were not from unbelievers. Who are they from? Professing Christians who lived unholy lives and who believed wrong doctrines about Christ, essential doctrines. Those were the most hostile. Those were the most. Who, who most hated Christ? It wasn't Rome. It was the Jews. They hated him. Because he exposed them. And that's, that's the idea here is that they're being exposed. He's saying you think that you're satisfied in yourself and that you're okay, but you're not. So this is the professing Christian who may be zealous or at least interested and involved in Christian service, doing good deeds of mercy or in, involved in Christian causes, but has never been emptied before Christ to see their sin and have all the righteousness bound in him who stood in their place. This is why, I think an illustration of this is found in Christ's ministry on the earth. It was the empty, self-confident religionist that he opposed so strongly. And who was it that came to him? The outcast, the rejected, the openly sinful, those who were clearly outside of the covenant and had rejected it. Those were the ones who were most able to see their sin when he came. And I think that's part of the idea when he says, I wish that you were hot or cold, because if you were cold, if you were at least openly hostile and unbelieving, you'd have a better chance of even taking these things seriously and being saved and understanding the message of the gospel. So Jesus said while he was on earth, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. If you, where do you, would you expect more evangelical success? Going down to Skid Row or going down to Greenwich and New Canaan? Where would you expect more evangelical success? Skid Row, the prisons, those places, that's the idea. At least they can look at their lives and say, I need help. The self-satisfied and the affluent and the comfortable have a much more difficult time with that. And that's the idea. I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold. I wish that you were something. But what I can't stand is that you're lukewarm. That you won't take a stand. That you don't believe anything with clear confidence. And that you're of no use to me. And your deeds are worthless. You are worthless. And I'm ready to spit you out of your mouth, my mouth. And then he explains it even more in verse 17. He says, you're useless, you're spiritually useless, you're also self-deceived. Look at verse 17, in a deep, deep way. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. Your view of yourself is the exact opposite of reality, is the idea. You say this about yourself, but I say this about you. They thought they were spiritually real, mature, safe, even blessed, but in reality they were in darkness and death. And this is in fact a common warning that we're familiar with throughout Scripture. And it's one of the major trappings of religion is to judge spiritual reality by human criteria and externals. 
rather than by a strict understanding of the transformation that comes about by true repentant faith in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And so we have a familiar many, many, many passages. Let me just give you one that we're all very familiar with, but says it well enough. And that's in Matthew chapter 7, speaking to a very religious people. There is a way that is wide that leads to death, and it's a road of religion. And there's a way of narrowness that leads to life. That is the way of true repentant faith. And then he says, you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He told the leaders you're familiar with, I know you that you do not have the love of God within yourself. You receive glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. He told the leaders, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of decay and dead men's bones. And this is really a mercy of Christ then to say this. Because repentant faith must begin with a recognition of who God is, who we really are, the reality of our situation. Otherwise, Christ in his glorious person and work will be little more to us than a moral example, the one to help in life or the means to fulfill my own desires. And so it has to come with an understanding of who God actually is. Something they did not have. What did they take confidence? Well, he says, you say I am rich I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Their wealth and their material excess is is what he emphasizes here. Now, it's important to note, and we do, that material wealth, material abundance, is neither good or bad in itself. It's the hard attitude that one has towards it. It's not wealth that is the sin or bad. It is the love of that wealth. It is the trust in that wealth. It is the desire for that wealth as the very identity of one's being and one's hope and one's joy and so forth when it becomes an idol. In fact, wealth was by God a means of blessing for many and especially in the Old Testament. Patriarchs, many of them were extremely wealthy. So much so that Abraham and Lot had to separate ways because there wasn't enough room for them and so forth. There's not wealth That is the bad thing. Wealth can be used for good when it serves in the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Out of your abundance, you were able to give generously to meet the needs of those who had a real need. And that was a reflection of the gospel. And he says, guess what? When that's your attitude, God will supply you with even more. So that you may sow more. And then God will give you more to sow. That's an eternal perspective of wealth. And it doesn't say that you can't enjoy those things while you have them. God gives us all things to enjoy. Even the wealthy should enjoy some of the privileges that come. That is fine. The issue is the grip that it has on your heart is the issue. The way that it influences your view of yourself, that is the issue. How it affects your ministry and service within the kingdom of Christ is the issue. Because wealth, as much as it is a blessing, can also be a means of great deception. Great deception. And it is that deception that they had fallen into and many of us have fallen into. Let me just give you one 
obviously scripture has a lot to say here, but let me just give you a few passages. In Psalm 49, he says this. Why should I fear, in verse 5, in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? Verse 16, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increase, for he will die and will carry nothing away, and his glory will not descend after him. However, though while he lives, verse 18, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself. Yeah, he's going to go to nothing, but his wealth in his life is a means of great self-sufficiency and self-glory and trust. His wealth is a strong tower. Psalm 52, 7 says this. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desires. He didn't need God. God was superfluous to his joy. It was superfluous to his identity. It was superfluous to his meaning and and what he pursued in life. He didn't need God as a refuge. And that is the great danger of deception of wealth, particularly many other passages. Let me go to the main thing here. And so what did this produce in them? Well, it says that I have no need. I have no need. And this is the key point. This is their essential error. This is why this person does not make God their refuge and run to him as a strong tower and rely only on his mercy and see themselves as nothing but abased before him. They say, I have no need. They have no need. They were, again, self-sufficient and self-satisfied. Still identified as the church, but it had nothing to do with a true love for Christ. And again, this is the seduction of wealth. What does it do? Why is it so seductive? Because it gives a sense of freedom. It gives a sense of freedom. As the psalmist says, it gives a sense of security when we have so much affluence. It gives a sense of Power and weightiness, when a wealthy person walks into the room, it has a certain weightiness to it. The same word for glory is sometimes used for that. You feel it when they walk into the room, a very wealthy person, a powerful person. And so it seduces, it's sensual, it appeals to the senses, and it deceives, and it seems to be self-validating in what it can accomplish in this world. And so he says the advantage... Of wealth is great. The advantage of wealth is great. Let me just give an example. He says in Ecclesiastes 10, 19, Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer for everything. Money. That's what Ethan Couch thought. Money is the answer to everything. Spiritual humility and sense of need is difficult in this context. And it doesn't even mean the ultra-wealthy. It's just we live in a society of abundance. We don't work for our food. We have safety from all of the elements. We live with conveniences and luxuries that most of the world through human history only dreamed of. You walk into a house that's either warm in the winter or cool in the summer. You turn on shower and get the temperature just right and stay there as long as you want. You open your fridge and you eat whatever you want. 
You go and do whatever you want. You have presented before you an endless array of ways to distract and to please yourself. You put on clean clothes. You sleep in a warm bed and comfortable sheets. It's, it's a, it's a, we live in a society of great affluence. And it's hard sometimes to understand the gospel. And this has always been a danger. It's always been a danger. Let me make one point here. And we'll have to pick it up next week. God constantly tested his people with wealth, with success. Let me give you one example. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, He tested them when they went through the wilderness. He wanted to know what was in their hearts. He wanted to see, and of course what he found with that first generation is that there was the tendency to trust in themselves and their own strength, not in God. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of that. But then he says, I'm going to bring you into a land, and I'm going to bring you into a good land. A land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. And a land of olive oil and honey. A land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten, and when you are satisfied... You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But beware that in all of this abundance, in all of this ease, in all of this taking in the good gifts of God, in all of these blessings materially and externally, in all of the things that you enjoy, verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied with the food and have built good houses and live in them and are satisfied with your comfort, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have is multiplied with your prosperity, with your ease, with your certainty for the future, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will forget that, and in forgetting, you will turn from faithfulness to him. He says, so beware. Be aware of this. Be aware of this attitude which can crouch up on us very easily. Let me give you one other example. And we'll have to end here. In Hosea chapter 11, he is confronting the people for this, really through verses, chapters 11 through 13. Let me focus on verse 13, chapter 13. He's talking about Ephraim's idolatry, and really what he's confronting them with is this, is that they had become so comfortable, so wealthy, and part of this wealth that they was through their compromise with the surrounding nations and adopting some of their idolatrous practices. And yet, they were increasing in abundance while holding to some superficial kind of religious route, of religiosity. They were still at the temple, they were still bringing sacrifices, but it was mixed with idolatry. And they felt that everything was okay because they were growing in such abundance. And so he says in verse 4 of chapter 13, I've been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. 
And you are, not know, you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. He says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And they had their pasture, and they became satisfied. And just as he had warned, being satisfied, their heart became proud, and therefore they forgot me. And so he says, I'm going to come like a bear robbed of her cubs. I'm going to tear open their chest, and I'll devour them like a lioness as a wild beast. I would tear them apart. Because they trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their abundance. They easily compromised with the nations around them and thought that somehow it would escape God's notice. Or even in some cases that God must be okay with what they're doing because they continue to increase. How could we be the objects of wrath when we have such increase of wealth? How could that be? And God says, because I've let you increase in your wealth to test your heart, and you've shown yourself to be unfaithful, and therefore judgment will come. This is precisely what was happening in Laodicea and happens with so many of us. A similar attitude, their compromise with the idolatrous trade guilds in their context. One noted their apparent willingness to participate in idolatry, even if through insincere token acknowledgement, ensured their economic well-being by ironically indicated their spiritual poverty. It happens with the temptation to compromise in business, advancement, economic advantage, a little compromise to bring success. It happens in a more subtle spiritual manner and the church adopts the thinking and patterns of the world and uses the world to attract them, compromising spiritual death, spiritual reality, and spiritual power, but thinking that large crowds and large budgets and large activities are God's affirmation they are successful. It happens in many ways rather than by measuring success by conformity to the image of Christ, a hungering after righteousness, a desire for the truth. It's when we judge by man-centered criteria rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, on this last note, the things presented in Scripture as dangers to our spiritual life are the very things that are promoted by health, wealth, and prosperity movement, which identifies much of popular Christianity. God couldn't possibly not want me living an abundant life. Well, we'll pick it up there next time, but let me just say, that is exactly the attitude of the whore of Babylon that the church adopts when we do that. And we say it strongly because Scripture says it strongly. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensually, to the same degree give her torment and mourning, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am not a widow and I will never be moved. Proud arrogance because of wealth and power, because of ease. Well, the great glory here is that we'll pick up, finish this next week, and then see the great glory of Christ's offer of redemption. There is in Christ riches beyond what we can imagine. He says in Psalm chapter 4, I think it is, I think it's Psalm 4. He says, we have joy and our joy increases more than when their new wine and grain abound. With wealth can also come troubles, but the one who is right with God and knows Christ 
one who has been reconciled to God through Christ, has access to a joy and hope even in little, even in suffering or in abundance that those outside of Christ will never have no matter how much they have. And that's what he calls us to realize. And that's what's pictured for us in the table. That we have a kingdom that is ours if we belong to Christ. We have a kingdom in the future where there's streets of gold, but we won't care about the gold. It'll just be beauty for Christ. Gates that are large, that are a single pearl, but we won't care about the value of the pearl, but how it glorifies Christ. We'll have riches and abundance and no need and satisfaction beyond what we can matter, can know, but it will have nothing to do with the material beauty. Those are all secondary. It will have to, be, have to do with our hearts filled with Christ. Filled with Christ, filled with his glory, filled with his love, filled with love for everyone there, filled with joy, filled with gratitude, filled with thankfulness for all that he is for us. And that's the first taste of which we get now if we know Christ. And that's what he offers to us. And that's what we remember in the table. So as we come to the table, let's thank him for the greatest gift of redemption and realize that so many Things that we enjoy in this life are an expression of his kindness, are an expression of his goodness. But may we realize and ask him to set our hearts securely, not on the things that are on earth, but the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And may that be our truest, truest longing. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of grace. God, there is no, there is no deception that we are not susceptible to, all of us but that you rescue us, that you open our eyes, that you help us to see clearly. Indeed, each of us here who know you were called out of darkness into life, were called out of death into life in your Son, eternal life, by grace, by sovereign grace. Help us, O oh Lord, who know you, to, to see that our true riches are in Christ, to enjoy the good things you give us, but only in as much as they point us to your grace and your goodness. May we have no complaint but joy that we, you are our refuge when we suffer want and lack, knowing that we can be content in all things because we can do all things through you who strengthens us, all things that you call us to do for your kingdom and to live for you in this world. And Father, if there are any here who are outside of Christ, and surely there are, and I pray that you would open their eyes to see the danger of trusting in those things that are vanity, of delighting in those things that can easily be blown away, of taking rest and comfort and security in those things that are nothing more than paper walls and foundation, and lead them to the everlasting rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.